Well, as Matt said, we're going to be talking about politics this morning, and specifically, we're going to be answering, hopefully, the question of what does the Bible teach us about our engagement with politics? And so what I want to do is I want to begin with a statement that Jesus makes, because I think it's a defining statement. It is a big idea from which later on in the message, I want to kind of derive about six different principles from which every single one of us, hopefully, no matter what situation it is that we face ourselves with or find ourselves facing or, or what decision we've got to make as it regards politics, can kind of help you form your own answers. And it's a statement of ownership, which is hugely important. In other words, Jesus comes to us with a statement and says, okay, guys, so here's the deal. I'm going to tell you who you belong to. And here's why that's important, because who you belong to defines then what your values are, what your priorities are, what it is that you ought at least to care the most about, to fight most passionately for, to promote above and beyond absolutely everything, including your most passionately held political views and opinions. And that's saying something. Guys, politics matters. Politics is hugely significant and important in our lives and in the lives of everyone around us. It's a really big deal. And it's interesting that Jesus makes this statement in response to a massively insincere question brought to him, by the way, by two opposing political parties. Two parties of people who agreed on absolutely nothing except on getting rid of Jesus because he was a threat to their political power. And we find this in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15, where it says, then the Pharisees, who by the way were the anti-Roman party, and all the Jews were under Roman occupation, and almost none of them liked it. So they were likely the majority party in this regard. The Pharisees, the anti-Roman party, went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words, and so they sent their disciples, like a delegation from them, from their party to Jesus, along with the Herodians, who were the pro-Roman party but who were fully willing to be involved in this trap, saying, and here comes the question, and it's couched in a compliment. It's so insincere and yet also just evil and wickedly brilliant. They come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we know that you are, that you are true and that you teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us then, what do you really think? Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Roman emperor, or not? Okay, we have a lot of just passionate issues that we're dealing with as a country, and I'll talk about one in just a minute. This was a hugely passionate issue for these people in this day. They had to pay all different kinds of taxes. There were poll taxes and sales taxes and this and that, but this was what was called the head tax. It was actually not a very expensive tax, but it was an insulting tax. It's bad enough that they had to be raped, pillaged, and plundered by these people. It's bad enough that they have to live under their power and under their thumb. It's bad enough that they have to pay poll taxes and sales taxes and all of these other things. But this was a tax paid by a specific coin called the head tax that was a tax that they would render to Caesar each year in a sense saying, we're your subjects. And they hated being his subjects. So they despised Caesar. They resented Rome. They hated this tax. And what these guys are thinking is, all right, so if Jesus says you need to pay the tax, the Pharisees are just going to collect up the Jews and go, why are you following this guy? He's pro-Roman. He's telling you to pay the tax that is the greatest insult from Rome to you at this point. And if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, 
the pro-Roman guys are going to go, ah, come on, I'm going to introduce you to some of my Roman friends who are going to crucify you as an insurrectionist because you're telling all the Jews not to pay the tax that Caesar has commanded that we all pay. So it's a brilliant trap, but it's not brilliant enough. I want you to notice what Jesus does and says, because he doesn't just say, pay your taxes. It says in verse 18, but Jesus, being aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? You know, he's not shy about his language. Show me the coin, he says, for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, which looked like this. You can see the image of Caesar on it. There are inscriptions written around it that talk about Caesar being a divine son of a God. It talks about him being a high priest. It's blasphemous to the Jews. It's blasphemous, frankly, to me. Jesus says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And so they brought him that. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness, literally what it says is, whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but don't miss this. He says, and render to God the things that are God's. What is he saying? He's saying, okay, render to Caesar the things that bear the image of Caesar. And those coins were literally, by the way, also minted out of the personal wealth of Caesar. So try to imagine that kind of wealth. But render to Caesar the things that bear the image of Caesar and therefore belong ultimately to Caesar, but render to God the things that bear the image of God and therefore belong ultimately to God. Okay, so the reason that matters to me and to you is because on page one of the Bible, it tells us that we were created in the image of God. So then what is Jesus saying? Well, I think at the very least, he's saying, pay your taxes. Be a good law-abiding citizen. Vote, because you've been given the ability to do that, do it. I think he's saying, look, run for politics. If you are convinced that that's what God would use your life to do, and that's the best use of your life, do it. I think he's saying, serve in the military. If your country needs you to serve in the military and honor those who have and those who do serve in the military because so much of what we enjoy in this great nation, we enjoy as the fruit of their labors and the product of their sacrifice and that of their families. I think he's saying, do all of these things and a hundred other things that good citizens do. But he's saying, do all of those things as those who understand that first you belong to God. That your primary identity is not as an American, but that your primary identity is as a son or daughter of the King who is Jesus. And that your primary citizenship is not the one you enjoy here. And we enjoy it here, guys. For all of our issues, for all of our challenges, for all of our passions, I would argue at least that this is the greatest nation that has ever been. My goodness, we are blessed. Nevertheless, he's saying, look, primary identity, follower of Jesus, primary citizenship, as important as this one is, is the citizenship in a kingdom that will never end. It's your citizenship in the kingdom of God. And that should then define your values and your priorities. It should establish what it is that you care the most about. You fight most vigorously and passionately for. You promote above and before absolutely everything and everyone including even these really, really important issues, these really important elections, this really amazingly important thing, practically speaking, in all of our lives called politics.
So that's the big idea, you know, and maybe you're thinking, all right, so I, I kind of understand the big idea. I'm a follower of Jesus before I'm an American. My citizenship in heaven takes preeminence even over my citizenship here, as important and significant as that is. But, you know, that's really not what I'm dealing with in life. Like, what, what, what do I do? Like, how does that work its way out in real life? Like, because the devil's in the details, and here's the deal. I don't know the details of every issue that you're going to face or every question that you might raise, but what I want to do, as I said at the beginning, is from that big idea, give you six things. Three things that I think that we should not do. Three things that I think that we should do. And with those six things, I think you can evaluate your own situations and answer your own questions. And the first thing that I think that we should not do is to identify Jesus or Christianity with any political party or candidate. So let that just sit for a second, because I know that makes some of you like really happy. That stirs the pot, man. Back away from the passion for a moment. Look at it objectively for a second. Doesn't that kind of make sense? Politics is the business of compromise. Jesus is uncompromising. There's a lot of untruth that happens. Jesus is himself the truth. Look, I think what I'm saying is that I don't think that we should do for Jesus what very clearly in this story he will not do for himself. Again, he's brought an issue by two opposing political parties. And what are they each asking them? They're asking him, hey, Jesus, do you identify with us? Or, hey, Jesus, do you identify with us? And what does he say effectively? He says, look, guys, I don't identify with either of you, but I have something to say to both of you. Should that not be the church of Jesus Christ? Should that not be what we remain able to do? I'm not saying don't be a Republican, just like I'm not saying don't be a Democrat. That's not the point. What I'm saying is that we ought not overtly or covertly, right, directly or indirectly, communicate that if Jesus was an American, well, obviously he would be one or he would be the other. And that if you're going to become a Christian, then you obviously need to be one or you need to be the other. I mean, or at least if you're going to be a serious Christian, then clearly you need to be one or you need to be the other. Is that true? I want to challenge that a little bit. And I want to do it by talking briefly about maybe the most passionate political topic out there, at least for a lot of us. And that is the topic of abortion. That's a feel-good one, isn't it? That's a hard one, guys. It's a difficult one. I will tell you that the one thing that I appreciate about the debate that we're having as a nation right now over the topic of abortion, and we are having it, is that at least everybody agrees what we're talking about. Unborn people are people too, and at this point, that's established. Technology has established that. The sonogram doesn't just tell it to us, it shows us in 3D images what the Bible has said all along and what common sense says. We've advanced in genetics, and geneticists now tell us this. Dr. Jerome Lejeune says that to accept the what? Because it's actually an important word, to accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new human life has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. Biology tells us this. Dr. Jaime Gordon of the Mayo Clinic says that by all criteria of modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. Theologians tell us this, not a big surprise there. But listen to the way Dr. John Stott says it, because I think he says it really well. He says, unborn children are not becoming human but rather are growing into the fullness 
of the humanity that they already possess, which in my experience at least, they continue to grow into long after they're born. Our youngest child is my son, 16 years old. He was developing into the humanity that he already possessed when he was in his mother's womb. He continued, after passing through the birth canal, to develop into the humanity that he already possessed. I am stunned right now at just how fast he's developing into the humanity that he already possesses, and he's convinced at this point that he is taller than me, which I'm not willing to concede, and here's why, because I do not think it would be good for his ego. So I'm just managing, (laughs) with wisdom, I am managing his soul, and his hairdo is working on my advantage because he's got this curly bunch of hair that sticks up like four inches above his scalp, and so I keep saying to him, bud, how do we really know? You know, I mean, I'm unconvinced, so I don't think that's the case. Do you know that the male brain, and this is not going to be a surprise, in fact, it's going to explain a lot of things. The male brain continues to develop until age 25. Did you know that? Think about all the crazy stuff you've done and just start dating it. Starting to make sense, isn't it? The female brain develops till 21. I mean, let's just be honest. They're more mature than than us and earlier in life. I mean, it's... It's a fact. What am I saying? I'm saying that no matter what side of the debate you're on at this point, we all agree that a journey through a birth canal does not a person make. And that unborn people are people too. And here's what that does. That takes this particular issue of abortion and it elevates it, at least arguably, to the single most significant human rights issue in the history of humankind. So it's not unimportant. And since the Republican Party, generally speaking, I understand there are Republicans who are pro-choice, is identified with pro-life, and since the Democratic Party, generally speaking, I understand that there are Democrats who are pro-life, but is, generally speaking, associated with pro-choice, there are people, maybe you're one of them, who kind of goes, man, you know, if you're really going to be a Christian, you got to get over here, this side of the aisle. You have to be a Republican. Remember years ago, I was in a small group of people, uh, and based on the demographic of that people, I'm just going to say it was like 100% Republican, except for the guy that was speaking, perhaps. It was Dr. Tony Campolo. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a Christian sociologist. He's pushed a lot of people's buttons, but he does a lot of research too. And he brought up this issue. He's a Democrat, by the way. He said, guys, look, I agree with all my Republican friends on all of these points. You know, I think it's wrong. I think the Bible's right. I think if you can outlaw it, knock yourself out. If you can, you know, whatever we can do to minimize it. He says, but here's the deal. Did you know that 70% of the abortions performed in America are economically driven? Do you know what that means? It means they're had by women who already have one kid or three kids or five kids. And now who are pregnant again and they're going, good grief, I can't feed the kids I have. And I don't have family to help me do this. I've burned those bridges or whatever. I don't have a choice. Like I hear you guys going, you have a choice and I I don't want to do it. But what do I do? And here's what I'm not doing. I'm not saying that I agree with Dr. Campolo. I'm also not saying that I think the economic platform of the Democratic Party is the one that is most strategically, you know, best positioned to alleviate poverty. 
I'm not saying any of those things about the Republican Party either. I'm not standing here as a Republican or a Democrat, and I'm not taking sides at all. I'm just illustrating two things. Number one, the issues that we fight over are a lot more complex than we typically give them credit for. A lot more factors to think about than we think about. And number two, people who love Jesus and love the Bible and all that can disagree. You know, I've had the privilege over the course of the last, I don't know, eight or ten years now to develop some, some good friendships with some African-American pastors in the 33311 zip code. Okay, that is the zip code in Broward County from which 69% of the homeless families come and 70% of the foster kids. It is the zip code in Broward County, if you look at the abortion statistics, that would have the highest, probably for the reasons I just explained. And I haven't asked these guys, hey, you know, are you guys Republicans or are you guys Democrats? Like, I haven't sat down and had that conversation, but I've had enough conversations with them to know that I'm pretty sure that they're Democrats. And they are some of the most Jesus-loving people I've ever met. Sweet, amazing churches. I preached at one of their churches, and I said, well, we're going to be in, I think it was Genesis 24, and like 150 people stood up with their Bibles in their hand waiting for me to read the passage. They love the Bible. They teach the Bible. The fruit of the Spirit is so manifest in the lives of these people that at times it makes me envious. But you know what? They're coming at life and the issues of our city from a completely different perspective. And if we just put our thinking caps on for a minute, it would make a heck of a lot of sense as to why. Their life experience has been completely different than mine. I'm like the whitest dude you've ever met. My parents just did the 23andMe thing, you know, like the DNA testing. Okay, so my mom's uh, came back 99.8% European descent. My dad registered 100. I said that to my family. My son goes, so that means we're the whitest people? Like, possible, right? <laughs> I was raised in an upper middle class home in a nice neighborhood. Went to private schools. Drove in nice cars. Went on nice vacations. Very, very different from my brothers and friends that I revere, guys, in this city. And what I've learned is that common sense and humility says to me, I just need to go to these guys. And I've done this and said, man, help me understand our city because I feel like we live in the same city, but we don't live in the same city. And I don't understand it. And you ask them what the issues are, and they'll start talking about the privatization of the prison system and how the prison system has become big business, big private business. They'll tell you the corporations that are making millions of dollars off the prison system. They'll show you the felony justice system and how it's designed, in their opinion, and I'm not taking sides, to feed people into the system, mostly young black men. We need to listen to one another. We need to learn from one another. We need to stop oversimplifying all of these issues. We need to remember that there's more than one issue. There are many. And thoughtfully work these things through. And we need not to communicate in any way, shape, or form that Jesus would be a Republican or a Democrat or that if you're going to be a Christian or really like a serious one, I mean, come on, you know, if you studied your Bible... 
that you'd be one or the other. The thing that Republicans, Democrats, and people who are red, yellow, black, and white, Christians and non-Christians need to know, all of us need to know, is that Jesus rescues us from that. And Christ forgives us for that. Everybody here, to some degree, has been affected by that. And the power of the blood of the Son of God is powerful enough to wash away our sin and to wash away our shame. So the first thing that we shouldn't do is identify Jesus or Christianity with any political party or candidate. But the second thing that we shouldn't do is allow our politics to come between us and our ability to reach people with the gospel. Why? Because the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is not to get people elected. It's not to make people Republicans or Democrats. It is not even the salvation in a political sense of the greatest nation in the world that is itself worth fighting and dying for. Our hope, as an aside, is evangelism. Our hope is revival. We need to have the soul of our nation changed. One person at a time, and there's only one way that happens. There's only one person who can do it. And that's Jesus, and that's our mission. And so, you know, during election seasons, for example, and I know this has been frustrating to some folks, and I like, I kind of get it, you know. We have refused categorically to hand out voter guides. Time after time, wave after wave. And and it's not that we don't think politics matters. I hope you've heard me say, I think it's hugely important. And it's not that we don't think the issues are important. I think they're massively important. And it's not that we think that voter guides aren't helpful. I think some of them are like really, really helpful. I personally, I've got two friends and they send me ones that they create. It helps me with the judges. And you know, I'm like, I don't know about some of these folks. But all that we say is we encourage you as a good Christian and a good citizen to vote and to vote Christianly. That is to say, research the topics, consider the candidates, and cast your vote in a way that you in good conscience believe would best honor Jesus. It's pretty simple. So we don't do voter guides, but I think that the way that we alienate people most commonly nowadays, is through social media. And I'm not going to like go off on social media, really. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a detractor from social media. I'm not overly involved in it. But that has more to do with me than it has to do with social media. And yet I think that that's a way that we alienate people politically all of the time from the gospel. I remember several years ago now, a really good friend of mine who's a ministry leader here in town I was posting stuff on Facebook and so, you know, political stuff. And I had a couple of people come to me, three, four, five, and they're like, hey, man, have you seen what so-and-so is putting on Facebook? And I said, no. And the reason for that, and I'm not against Facebook, it's just that I'm not on Facebook. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's honestly just one of my goals, right? I just, I don't want to do it. It's one more thing for me to manage, and with my personality, now I have to manage it, and it's like, ah, I'm just not going to do it. I'm on Instagram. Instagram makes me happy. I love seeing the pictures of your kids. That's all I'm going to do, okay? But they showed me stuff, and so I had a breakfast with this person, and I just sat down with him and said, listen, man, love you, respect you, appreciate you, value your opinion, your input into my own life, what you're doing here in the community is really awesome but I've had these people approach me about this and I gave him very specific examples so he knew that I knew what I was talking about. And I said, help me understand it because I don't understand it. I think what's happening is you're not convincing anyone of anything. You're just hardening people in opinions that they already had and you're ticking off people 
who don't agree with you, but who aren't going to sit down with you at a breakfast like this and tell you that. They're just not going to support your ministry. They're not going to pray for you. They're not going to speak well of you in the community. And you're alienating them for what good end? What good result? Like, what are you getting as a payoff for this? I think the answer is nothing. And I don't think it's good for his soul. And I don't think it's good for the souls of the people who read it. And he said, what should I do? I said, you should cease and desist. You should just never talk about it again. Put pictures of your kids. That's what everybody wants to see anyway. He said, great. And that's what he did. But I'm just going to say, he's not the only person that people have come to and said this about to me. I mean, full disclosure, I've had people come to me and go, hey, did you know that so-and-so from Rio is, you know, and did you know that so-and-so would put this in a, you know, and I mean, I don't have time for that many breakfasts. I'm not going to lie. So <laughs> I just want to have the breakfast now, okay? Can we just, just pretend like it's breakfast, all right? So here's the deal. I love you. I appreciate you. I value you. What good is this doing? What good is it doing for you? <laughs> if you're going to vent, do it. Find a different way. It's not throwing water on the fire. It's throwing gasoline on the fire. It's hardening people in things they already believe. And it's alienating people. Sometimes people who do not know Jesus from the gospel, from the person perhaps that he has placed, God has in their life to tell them about Christ. So we shouldn't identify Jesus or Christianity with any political party or candidate. We shouldn't allow our politics to come between us and our ability to reach people with the gospel. And then thirdly, the last thing I think that we shouldn't do is we shouldn't obsess over politics. It's not where our hope is. Our hope is in the mission of God. Our hope is revival. Our hope is the gospel. Our hope comes from above. It just, it does. And you know what? Obsessing over it is bad for your soul. Full disclosure, I do not watch the news. I have not watched the news in 10 years. I mean, I might walk through the room and the news is on, you know? Or if there's something going on that's like, oh my goodness, I'll, I'll turn it on and then I'll watch it. But on a regular basis, I don't do it. I'm not on Twitter, I am, but I don't look at it because it's a lot of political stuff. And it just, I'm kind of going, man, I've got to manage my own soul. And so do you. And we may all have different thresholds and tolerance levels, but there is too much at some point for all of us. So I get online, I look through the headlines. You know, I mean, if the world ended, I want to know. You know, so like, I mean, I do... <laughs> I do check, and I, I figure, honestly, that if it ends, somebody will tell me, you know? So, so then I'll turn the news on. Get the idea? I want to be sure that I know what's happening and I'm able to stay relevant and all of that, but then that is it. I want to ask you some questions. How much time do you spend watching and listening to and reading about politics versus about Jesus, versus about the church, versus about missions, versus about the kingdom of God? How much time do you spend talking to people about politics versus Jesus? Like, when was your last political conversation? And when was the last conversation in which you had a, a good talk about the Lord with somebody and shared the gospel with somebody? How moved are you by the things of politics versus the things of Jesus? We get all fired up, which is the whole point of the media. You know that, right? 
It's to addict us via our adrenaline to this idea that if we don't watch it and stay plugged in all of the time and therefore be aggravated at about a 99% level all of the time that the world will end and we won't know it. It's marketing as much as it is anything else. Look, I don't know what your answers to those questions are, but I suspect we could all use a little less politics and a little more Jesus. So those are three things that I feel like we shouldn't do. But here are three things very quickly that I I know that we should do. Number one, we should pray for those who govern over us. Whether we like them or not, whether we voted for them or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether we're offended by them or not, they are our leaders. And we are commanded by Scripture to pray for them. Secondly, we should obey the law. We should be good, law-abiding citizens. All of us, like we should obey the law. I say that to myself, and I'm going to try not to speed on the way home because I'll have my own voice in my head going, obey the law, you know. But really, we should. We're commanded that in the Bible too. Paul tells us that in Romans 13. God has ordained government to reward good and to put down evil. And as broken, perhaps, as our government is, I'm thankful for it. And then thirdly, we should be involved in politics. I think that to not be involved oftentimes is to be involved. We should be involved, but we should do so. We should be involved in a way that respects our primary identity as followers of Jesus and our primary citizenship, which is our citizenship in heaven. You belong to God first, and everything and everything, everyone else, including our politics guys, has to bow to that. Okay? All right, so no tomatoes. That was good. I appreciate that. Nobody threw anything. Probably only half of you will be back next week. Which half? Yes, which half? That's right. The real believers. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, let me, let me pray for us, okay? Lord, we, we bring ourselves to you, and we are broken, and we are flawed, and we are passionate, and we are driven, and we are offended, and we are so many things. Sometimes rightly. Sometimes not. We thank you for the one who transcends all of it. And yet who entered into all of it to rescue us from the whole of it. We thank you, Lord, that there is Jesus. We thank you that he is king and that even when we cannot understand his ways, we proclaim him to be good. We can trust him and we love him. We thank you that this world is not our end. Everything built by man dies, like man, everything, except for the Son of Man, the eternal man. So we praise you for the world that awaits us, and we ask you for the wisdom by which to honor Jesus as we live out our lives in the world that is, and as we seek to do that in this really important area called politics. Give us that grace, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.